Today on The Lab Report, Dr. Ross Arena. Patty, how many peer-reviewed things have you published? Zero. How many has Dr. Arena published? Like over 850. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Yeah, so you framed that question to say, Patty, how many things have you published? Yeah, that's and right. You've uh-huh. not published anything either. 849 things. <laughs> that's a big lie. Hello. <laughs> I'm Michael Chapman. Hello, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing so well today. I'm so glad to be here. Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome, everyone out there. How are you doing? This is a podcast by Genova Diagnostics where we talk about things like functional medicine and integrative therapeutics and specialty lab testing. Yeah. And when you hear this podcast and you realize it's the best podcast you've ever heard. Which should have already happened by now. If it hasn't, it's probably happening as we speak. That's right. So you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify, download, subscribe, rate, and review. Leave us some feedback there. Do all those things. That'll really help us out. It'll help with uh, the way that we are perceived out there in the podcast land. And if you have a question from out there to us then you can email podcast at gdx.net and it'll be a good time. We'll answer yeah, it. we'll answer it. Even if it's just to say hi, Michael needs friends. And I will answer that, even That's though it great. requires no answering. <laughs> I will. Well, Michael, I think we have a very special guest coming. Dr. Ross Arena, you mentioned him as we were opening the show. I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Ross Arena. Apparently he is the guy. Oh, you talk to any people in the physiology world or in Which cardi- we have. cardiopulmonary respiratory. Right. We're lucky enough to have talked to some of these people. And guess what? They said he's the guy. They said he's the guy. So guess what we did? We got him. We called the guy. Right. And he's here. That's cool. And if anyone goes to PubMed and researches Dr. Ross Arena, he's so well published. He's everywhere. He speaks for the American Heart Association. He's everywhere as far as health and fitness and kind of fits into exactly what we do here in functional medicine. That's awesome. How do I get to be the guy? I want to be the guy of something. You're the guy in this room. I'm the only guy in this room. Correct. Let's call Dr. Arena. Yeah, good idea. So, Patty. Yeah. We have on Dr. Ross Arena. He's the guy. I know. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Arena. So, Ross Arena, PhD, is professor and head of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Arena received his bachelor's in human performance from Southern Connecticut State University, and he then went on to receive his master's in physical therapy and PhD in physiology from the Medical College of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Arena is a fellow and active member of the American Heart Association and European Society of Cardiology, and Dr. Arena's scholarly interests include exercise testing and training in patients diagnosed with cardiopulmonary disease dysfunction and healthy living initiatives and policy across the lifespan. Dr. Arena has published extensively in these areas with over 850 peer-reviewed publications, abstracts, and book chapters. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Right. And with that, just welcome welcome to the lab lab report. report. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you both today. Great, great. Well, Ross, you know, here in functional medicine, our focus is on lifestyle-first approaches to chronic disease. And we recently interviewed Dr. Jimmy Bagley from San Francisco State University and did a podcast episode on exercise as medicine. And 
Jimmy Bagley says, you're the guy when it comes to cardiorespiratory exercise testing. So I guess we just want to start with what got you interested in human performance and physical therapy when you started your training? Sure. Uh, I guess it started with I was always I came from a family that exercised and moved a lot. And I think I'll talk more about that throughout that the importance of moving more and sitting less has really become a, a focus. But I, I guess that's, you know, where I where I started was my own personal family and life and, and staying fit and active. And then when I went, uh, started my college education, I, my, my bachelor's in human performance, and that really inspired me to a whole different level with respect to the importance of fitness to health and longevity and promoting the health span as we refer to it. And I was I was hooked in my human performance undergraduate training and then just continued on from there. I never really looked back. Yeah. And even with physical therapy, which is much more, I think, focused on orthopedics and other other areas and not so much cardiopulmonary or prevention, mm-hmm. kind of always stayed the course with with that focus. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. Well, and you've published tons of research regarding cardiovascular disease, obesity, and diabetes. And most recently, you published a paper in the journal Progress in Cardiovascular Disease, where you outlined an initiative called HL Pivot in response to the current pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about this paper and and what you're proposing as the global path forward? Sure. So, you know, to elucidate a little bit more on my my PhD training and my research focus for a number of years, like a number of us, I think, thinking about the, the healthcare system that we're in, it's we've grown up, if you will, clinicians and researchers in this reactionary secondary prevention model mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, patients will come to us that are pretty far along with chronic disease, heart disease, and pulmonary hypertension, those types of things, COPD. And then trying to make some lifestyle changes in, in, that, in that context. So, thinking about reversing some bad things. And while there's, so that's kind of where I got my start, you know, thinking about how to use exercise testing to predict outcome and the importance of fitness, which is now considered a vital sign, working in cardiac rehabilitation and overseeing some large data sets there, demonstrating the importance of no matter what your your health phenotype is, that uh, making healthy lifestyle changes is is important. And then I started to shift, and I'm going somewhere with this with HL Pivot, I started to shift. <laughs> yeah more of a, a proactive preventative model. As healthcare started to shift a, a little bit with the Affordable Care Act, and you started to hear some more prevention language and the covered lives model, we are keeping people healthy where they live, work, and go to school versus waiting for something bad to happen. That really did speak to me and, and wanted I wanted to move more out of, well, waiting for people to have a bad lifestyle habits and chronic disease and, and thinking about preventing those things, I thought that the opportunity was there. So while I still do a lot of cardiac rehab work and chronic disease work, I shifted a pretty heavy focus towards prevention and the importance of moving more, the importance of exercising, maintaining a healthy body weight, eating appropriately, eating you know a nutritious diet. Mm-hmm. And so I was already there. And then you know I started to pay attention is with COVID, with the pandemic. You pretty start. You, so my first thought was, and so we published a series of papers, was more of the narrow context of, okay, so now we're sheltering in place, everything's, you know, closed down, we have these social isolation practices, and we've all, we already have a physical inactivity pandemic, like that was characterized in the 2012 Lancet paper that way. And now, 
we have significantly curtailed the ability to move more and sit less, even more so. So yeah. I started to think about and publish in that context of, oh my gosh, it, we're, you know, is this going to be lasting? And in fact, you know, papers are coming out showing physical activity is indeed declining. If you look at there was a paper um, post the tsunami in Japan where physical activity plummeted and stayed that way for three years after, wow. you know, it still is down. So are we, you know, that was kind of the, the initial papers are, are we, you know, have we adopted even poor lifestyle habits and are those going to be lasting? Yeah. And so we start right that way. And then, you know, you start to look at the data with who gets hospitalized with COVID, with who has a poor health outcome. And, and lo and behold, when you look at, you know, the hospitalization patterns, the, the, the common culprits of the unhealthy global crises we are dealing with, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, chronic disease, they're all cropping up. That if you have this phenotype, you are at significantly higher risk for hospitalization, significantly higher risk for mortality. And so, and like you, you know, what your your group's work is and 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 mine is is, is healthy healthy living medicine as we've characterized right. it. Sure. Uh, and so you've got a situation, an opportunity, which is where this paper is like, it's time to rethink, it's time to learn some lessons from this pandemic that you know we need to build this model of, of human resilience and promote quality of life so not only for chronic disease prevention but now from viral infection mm-hmm. uh, because you have data already that shows that if you are active and you exercise your immune response is so much better if you're not obese if you have a healthy diet you know your ability to to combat these things are so much better and so the paper was kind of it's basically the same model that healthy living medicine is important, but reframing it and putting it under one umbrella, you know, healthy living for pandemic event protection, mm-hmm. which in the acronym is, is HL pivot. But, you know, looking at the physical inactivity uh, crisis as a pandemic, which has been characterized, obesity has been characterized as a pandemic, chronic disease has been characterized as a pandemic. And now we've got these viral pandemics and they're all you know, synergized together and leading to really poor health outcomes and Mm -hmm. creating, having a healthy lifestyle is the way, you know, healthy living medicine is the way to prevent and and improve the health outcome with all of these things. And so that was the, the crux of the, of the paper is to, to, to bring a group together. So we, we wanted global representation. So from different walks of life, different expertise and say, Hey, you know, Let's form a network and let's start to pull resources together, communicate more and 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 really reinvigorate healthy living medicine in a unified way. Uh, because you know, another issue is when you think about healthy living medicine and practices, it's been very siloed, right? That mm. you know, you look at cardiovascular disease and cardiac rehab to prevent it. And yeah. you've got the pulmonary group here, you've got the diabetes group here, but we're all trying to do the same thing. You know, exercise, maintain a good, a healthy body weight, eat nutritious foods. And so I think we should be thinking about these things collectively. And if we unify our voice, uh, you know, maybe we could make more of an impact. So so from that, I, I think we're, we've really gained some pretty quick momentum. People are starting from within the network to collaborate on surveys and projects where we um pulled together a proposal for our first scientific statement, kind of a state, a current state of affairs with our four areas that are outlined in the paper, knowledge, discovery, so research, policy, 
education and implementation of healthy living. So those four areas. So we're going to do a, a review on, you know, the best evidence in those areas. And then where do we go from here? You know, mm -hmm. how do we move the, the ball forward? And so like many things before, we put out a call to get a core writing group and 20 people within 24 hours said they'd love to be a part of it and mm -hmm. already signed this sections and have a timeline. So I, I think that's the the, the hope of this is that we get people and we grow the network over time, but we just start to think about how we work together in a different way mm -hmm. to create a culture of health. Mm. A long-winded answer. That's kind of... No, <laughs> no, no, but but it's true. And it's true. And I guess th this pandemic, the COVID pandemic, has really kind of shined a light. But what people aren't forgetting is that there was already a pandemic of obesity and diabetes. So it is a tale of two pandemics. And so I think, you know, when we, we look at lifestyle medicine and really just using your initiative and your group in HL Pivot to, to shine the light and move this ball down the road to healthy living and preventative medicine is important. And along these same lines, we've we've also seen you write about something like prescribing the healthy lifestyle poly pill. And so I think that kind of goes along with this. What do you, what do you mean by this? The, the the healthy lifestyle poly pill? You know, thinking about healthy living medicine, right? And and where we've historically come from and and why I think we can't we haven't my personal feeling is why we haven't been able to move the ball further and and increase adoption of healthy lifestyle behaviors is because there's this disconnect between, you know, goal recommendations and what the science is telling us is actually beneficial. Mm -hmm. So for example, the physical activity guidelines is not, not as much the, the latest U.S. guidelines, which is a, a wonderful advancement, but, but historically, you know, when you think about exercise and you get counseled, what, what's the message? It's a all or none right. messaging approach of, well, you know, you're here's here's what exercise is: 150 minutes or more of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week, and or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise per week, mm -hmm. and that's it, right? That you know, it's that all or none. So I, I've talked about this, like when you, when we, we won't, probably won't have time to talk about health literacy, which fascinates me, and we've written about it. That you know, this whole communication piece. Mm -hmm. How does a person who's been inactive their whole life perceive that? Right. And so, you know, and, and is it immediately an unattainable goal? Is it immediately something that, well, I can't do that. And so I'm not going to think about it. Right. But when you look at the evidence and it's been, you know, I think one of the first landmark studies was in the 1950s and in England, the, the double decker bus study where they looked at the person who checked tickets and walked up and down the aisle and the person who drove the bus and they didn't ever switch. And the person you know, checking the tickets wasn't doing moderate intensity physical activity. Mm -hmm. They were just moving. And and there was like about a 50% difference in cardiovascular disease risk between the driver and the person checking the tickets. So we have, and, and on and on, the literature has shown that any amount of movement is is better than, than none. Mm -hmm. And so imagine if we started to have conversations and well, and along the same lines, if we want to talk about the polypill, same with nutrition, that the pure study, you know, these these bigger global surveillance studies, two to three servings of fruits and vegetables, there's some suggestion that that might plateau the health benefit. But mm -hmm. when we talk about, you know, it's it's five. And so, again, if you have someone who has a poor diet and say, we'll go from zero to 60. Right. And then you start to throw on top food insecurity and food deserts and access to healthy right. food. Is that attainable? Right. So, right. so the healthy living, you know, healthy lifestyle poly pill is more of, you know, you can 
tailor maker. You should have a company, a conversation about adoption of healthy living behaviors and and what what's possible with with an individual. Are you willing to go from exercising no times per week to taking a walk for 20 minutes twice per week? Are you willing to, you know, are you able to find a way to replace, you know, unhealthy foods with one to two servings of fruits and vegetables today per, to start? And imagine if we had that conversation. Right. And so that's a dose of the healthy. It's not the optimal dose, mm -hmm. but it's an effective dose. Huh. Then you can start to pragmatically work up towards ideal goals. And we should probably celebrate every level of pragmatic achievement and not push a person, you know, have the cognizance as clinicians to think about when a person is not willing to go any further. And if you push them, the person's going to revert back, right? That that they're not going to they're not going to be you know adopt those those lifestyle behaviors over the long term. So that's kind of what the healthy lifestyle polypope is that you can dose activity and eating healthy in different shapes and forms, mm -hmm. different doses. They're not you know you can get your ideal maximal dose, but you can get tremendous benefit by any type of dosage. It, you know, especially for those who are sedentary and have the poorest of lifestyle to begin with, which is a significant part of the population. Yeah. You know, there's one study, and oh, this always strikes me. I talk about this a lot too. And, and this is a part that comes in with respect to, you know, we can talk about the healthy life, living poly pill and, and moving more and seeing less, but how we communicate these things. And so there was a study, it was a, you know, an interview type qualitative study. And so they looked at barriers in women to physical activity. And one, one woman said, and I quote that walking her dog for, you know, 20 minute walks was a barrier to being physically active yeah. and, and being, you know, the, 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 the physical activity guidelines. And, and so I think, I think that's, we have to change that perspective because that's what people think. Yeah. Right. That, that they think, well, you know, this and walking is a, I mean, think about that. Walking is a barrier to being physically active. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But the, the most recent physical activity guidelines, you know, are there's the, it has a consistent theme of move more, sit less. Any movement is better than none. Uh -huh. And I think we're getting there now. It's translating the messaging at the level of the where the conversations actually take place. So that's kind of what we, we try to pitch with that healthy living poly pill. I'm thinking yeah. about the different dosages that you could use. Interesting. And I have a little bit of a follow up to that, too, because I'll tell you where I'm coming from with this question is that a lot of times as clinicians and clinicians in the integrative space, you know, we are working with these patients who may have limited time or limited, you know, I won't say limited motivation, but they're 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 trying to overcome some of the behavior change struggles that they've been dealing with. And they'll try to negotiate. Do we focus more on a changing the dietary intake? Do we focus more on trying to get more movement on board. Would you have a suggestion on like, what's the, what's the biggest first step or what, what has the biggest impact as far as a first step, whether that's a simple nutritional change or a simple activity change or, or both or, or one versus the other? I, I hope that question makes sense. Oh, that's an excellent question. And I think, you know, it gets to that, that health literacy. We, we wrote a paper, we called it, we, we characterize it as health harmonics and having a, that bi-directional conversation where you're on the same wavelength. And to your point of what's the, the most meaningful change, mm -hmm. I, I when you, and when you think about, we've talked about precision medicine and starting to align the, the terminology in, in healthy living with, with what's going on around us in healthcare, which I, I think if we, all, if we align the language, that, that helps as well. But it's more of what is a 
person willing to do? You know, mm -hmm. so if you have a person in front of you, and, and just now we're learning that just sitting less, uh, aside from exercising, has tremendous health benefit. So you've got these tools. And you, so you say you have a sedentary person who's obese. And, and even if you, you change lifestyle habits and don't change body weight, that has tremendous benefit. It's like eating healthier is better for you. Moving more and sitting less is better for you. Even, even just sitting less throughout the day and breaking up sitting time, taking steps, so on and so forth. Losing weight is better for you, but it isn't imperative to have some, some initial health changes. What are you willing to do? Well, I don't want to exercise, but I, I can decrease my sitting time. And I don't eat, you know, fruit and vegetables on a regular basis, but I, I'm, I'm willing to start to substitute some foods and, and make a goal of one to two fruits hmm. and vegetable servings per day. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. You, you know, that, like yeah. that's, that's where you start. So you know, there's been studies, too, where a, a health it was centered on physicians, but the average time a physician interrupts a patient after they ask a question about how they're doing six seconds. Wow. And so... How are you going to garner anything? And if you just, un, you know, talk in a unidirectional fashion without, you know, having some engagement from the other, I think this is why compliance and adherence is, is suffers, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to your point of what's the most important thing, anything, anything that is associated with moving more, sitting less and eating better and then celebrating those things that right, right. not taking the context of, well, this is not ideal. You know, this is great. You've done that. And are you willing, are you willing to do more? Yeah. Okay. Well, what is it that you're willing to do? Well, now I, you, maybe I'll, I've been feeling a little bit better. I have a little bit more energy. I'm sleeping better. How about, you know, I think I'll start taking 10 minute walks every other day. Yeah. Fantastic. That's cool. You know, and, and just moving, continuing to move the ball. And I don't think it takes much to just take a second and, and listen. Right. Right. But we need that. That that comes with medical training and and the other health professions as well. How we communicate and how we just take a second and and listen. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, yeah, I love it. It almost gives me chills thinking about how there's these very simple steps that patients can do to really right. make a, a huge in impact. But then at the end, at the beginning, at the very beginning of that interaction, so much is writing on whether they feel motivated. And that can just be whether they're interrupted or not. I think it's the that's, communication. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's right. Yeah. And, and being sensitive too. I mean, it's so complex when you think about, we have a, a clinic in an underserved school we actually built a clinic, a nurse-driven clinic, and we started a physical activity clinic, and we're expanding that to another site we have. But, you know, the whole piece about this, the, you know, where you live and do you feel safe to exercise and, right. and, and, and problem-solving those, those things as well, it's, it's complicated and it's individualized, and, and you have to, to problem-solve with the, with the person and give them resources to, to accomplish those things. But it's not, it's not one-size-fits-all. And, and, you know, we're thinking about precision medicine already, right? But I think the Healthy Living Initiative needs to just full-on adopt that because precision medicine speaks so well to, to healthy living and the benefits derived from it. So, you know, we've been pushing that as well, that, that individualized approach. Perfect. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. The next question I had is that you do a lot of work with the American Heart Association, and some of that revolves around helping employers foster healthy workplace environments. Can you talk a little bit about the main areas of focus that helps companies create 
a culture of health? Like what what's different when you're setting out guidelines or working with uh, companies as compared to the individual patient? Yeah, sure. So I think it's more of how I think about it. And I think how people at AHA think about it is if we're going to go towards this proactive, preventive healthcare model, then we have to rethink what a healthcare system is. And a healthcare system cannot just be the inpatient or, you know, inpatient setting, outpatient clinics, the ICU setting, and so on, that the workplace, the community, grocery stores, school systems, they're clinics too, they're prevention clinics. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the big push, I mean, thinking about, you know, the, the, what is it now, 150 million or more Americans, you know, are in a workplace setting. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful opportunity to engage a group in a, a large percentage of the population in a culture of health and wellness. And so, you know, that's a big push with, with American Heart is seeing that opportunity to think about how we can create that culture of health and wellness and empower businesses to, to think that way to, again, get people to move more and sit less and eat healthier food, not smoke and maintain healthy body weight. Uh, you know, the, the four, four pillars, if we extend it out a little bit. So, you know, I think it's one of the, the big pushes for American Heart that I work with them on is, you know, having some type of benchmarking for companies to kind of gauge themselves about what it is they're doing. Do they have, you know, physical activity programs? Do they have, you know, access to healthy food, walking trails? What are they, what are they doing to create that culture of health and wellness within, within their setting? I think it's, it's a big push is that is in engaging companies to, to think that way. The, a majority of companies, especially the larger ones, have health and wellness programs. Mm-hmm. They're not standardized to uh, any great degree. So I think we have to work towards there that best practices, if you will. You know, when you think about a clinic and you think about evidence-based practice, that's what drives medicine. And I think I, I think we should try to adopt that model in, in the workplace of these are best practices based on, you know, a large, medium, small size business. This is what's possible and align with best practices. This is, this is the, the, these are the things that you can do in your setting. A large point of making the case to businesses is return on investment. And so there's a lot of data out there that, you know, again, it's, there's a wide band, but on average for every dollar you spend on your employer's health and wellness, you save $3 over, you know, a several year period in health, healthcare expenditures. So there's a good case to make for that. But yeah, there's uh, the American Heart has a big push in worksite health and wellness. We're working on several initiatives right right now around that area. But it's 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 complicated because you know how do you how do you set those programs up? Like who's going to deliver them? Mm-hmm. It's easier for bigger businesses, really sm- tough for smaller businesses. Mm-hmm. To, to, so there's a lot of work to be done in that area, but an an immense amount of potential if we standardize things, think about best practices and, and do it and do it right. But making that case of return on investment to companies is is an important, I think an important piece that's to it. That's huge. Yeah. 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 I'm sure because that's gonna lead to probably more widespread adoption. Do you still find that there's resistance even when presented that type of return on investment f- facts to, to to companies that they're that there's any sort of skepticism around that? That mm-hmm. seems I don't know, that seems pretty obvious. Yeah, no, I don't know if it's skeptical. I think it's because it's not 
you know, standardized like mm-hmm. medicine. It, mm-hmm. you, you know, you there, there's a scatter of, well, this study showed this return on investment. This study showed that one. There is the data showing that, you know, you might not realize those returns on investment for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having that long, you know, that long-term commitment. So I, I think you can make a compelling case that there is a, a positive economic approach to this mm-hmm. and it might be long-term, but, you know, I, I think about it's, 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 it's this conceptual thing, perhaps. It's just like our healthcare system where, you know, we lived in the system where it's the fee-for-service model, right? That mm-hmm. you you deliver a service and you get money back. And, and now thinking about like, well, you know, things shift. And, and we didn't want to get out of that model of thinking about how the money looked and how the money flowed. And not until we moved more towards this accountable care organization model where it's covered lives. If you get X number of dollars for covering a life whether they go to the hospital or stay healthy and home and get the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, and then that shifted things where, mm-hmm. you, you know, having people have healthy lifestyle habits became much more important. So I think it's just the way we've always looked at money and investing and conceptualizing, well, if I spend this now, it's going to be better in the long term. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if it's skepticism is just wrapping your head around maybe that, that yeah. type of investment yeah. for a business. Because they can't see the tangible, you know, right, right up front. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and that—that's more of my personal feeling, I think, than evidence-based. Got it. Got it. Well, can we shift focus just a little bit here, Ross? I want to talk about markers of longevity and things that are prognostic, like prognostic clinical vital signs as they relate to physical activity. What do you think are the most important physical activity factors that can predict? or impact long-term health? Sure. So when you think about, so the, the AHA put out a statement. So there's two two ways to look at this. So mm-hmm. cardiorespiratory fitness, which is, you know, an exercise test and, and engages amongst other things, your maximal exercise capacity is a more objective marker. And I was on the AHA scientific statement, that statement in 2016, and Robert Ross from Canada led it. But we made a very compelling case that cardiorespiratory fitness should be viewed as a vital sign mm-hmm. because no matter what your other health characteristics are, the fitter, you, you know, the higher your exercise capacity, the better you do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone can dispute that. Uh, and on average, and, you know, one, every one metabolic equivalent increase, so 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute, each one met increase equates to about a 12% reduction in long-term mortality risk. Wow. Um, And that's a pretty consistent trend. Actually, there is some data to suggest that, you know, in cardiac rehab, that if you have really low fitness coming in, each met increase can be up to 30% reduction in mortality risk. So the bigger the bang for your buck, if, if you really start at a poor fitness level. So, so there's fitness as a vital sign. There's exercise capacity. And then there's the physical activity vital sign asking the question, you know, how much do you exercise per week? How much, how many steps do you take? So on and so forth. And th- that has been shown to be telling as well, just asking the simple question. But if you compare the two, as far as which one has a better, stronger prognostic significance is more accurate, mm-hmm. perhaps understandably so, it's it's looking at cardiorespiratory fitness in, in and objectively measuring it through a treadmill test or a bike test, because, you know, you can ask a question and is it 
100% accurate? Is there, there's a little bit more variability to that. Right. But certainly, simply asking the question, you know, how much do you exercise per week is telling. There's health systems, Kaiser model, you know, I think led the way in a, to a great degree with that of the, the, the physical activity vital sign questions and showed that it was prognostic. Mm-hmm. So I think at a minimum, we should be just like we take heart rate and blood pressure and temperature. We should be asking right. how much are you exercising per week? And maybe we, we've kind of couched this too. We've put out some papers of the importance of moving more and sitting less. It's not just what's your structure, physical activity look like? How, how many hours a day are you sitting? Mm-hmm. How many steps are you taking per day? And, and what's your leisure time physical activity pattern looks like. So it's more about that movement profile. And then that would allow you to have that conversation we talked about of how you could move more and sit less, because all three of those things are important. Take more steps per day, sit Mm -hmm. less per day, and, and ideally, you know, have a leisure time structured exercise routine. And then if you do have an exercise test, uh, paying attention to that response. You know, a lot of people have stress tests. I, it's amazing. I used to work in a, my lab in, in Virginia was uh, in non-invasive cardiology and, and worked in the same space as um, nuclear imaging, so you had n- nuclear stress tests. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of people through year, you know, over year over year would go through and get those tests and no one was really paying attention to peak meds. You know, it was right. more like, well, let's get you up to a level and image your heart, but not paying attention to perhaps one of the most telling things to someone's health over the long term is how far they went on the treadmill test. Right. Yeah. And it struck me, no one was paying attention to that. So, you know, I, I, as a clinician, if you ask the question and then especially with electronic health records, have you ever had an exercise stress test? Well, let's look at that and let's look how far you went. Let's look at your your peak exercise capacity, because that's that's so telling. And then you can identify the worst phenotype when you want to talk about markers of longevity and prognosis. We'll, we'll take the bookends. You get, if you have all the data available to you and you ask the questions and they sit eight to 10 hours or more per day, you know, they minimally take steps and have no exercise program. And so basically a sedentary lifestyle and had a, a stress test in the, in the past and only got to four METs, mm-hmm. you know, that five MET window, that five METs is an important threshold. And studies have shown five to eight is kind of the intermediate level and eight, certainly past 10 METs are in good shape. So you identify somebody less than five METs in a sedentary lifestyle, that then, you know, that's an all hands on deck person. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that phenotype has to change and, and taking the page from the healthy lifestyle poly pill, any movement is better than none. But that those are the the people that you should refer on maybe to an exercise specialist and get that, you know, more focused care. Mm-hmm. And then you get somebody who's maybe, you know, they're seven mats. They take walks a couple times per week. You know, they sit maybe six hours a day, seven hours a day. It's not ideal, but you know, there's some tweaking to do there, but you don't, you don't think of someone like that of, okay, long-term health trajectory and prognosis. They're at higher risk, but they're not like in that urgent bucket. So maybe you can take a person like that. And if they're motivated to make some behavioral changes, you start to, maybe they can do it on their own and you can track them in that way. Yeah. And then you have someone, you know, 11 Mets, physically active, maybe they have some other risk factors. Maybe you have a family history of heart disease. Maybe they have high cholesterol or, or those things, but, but the, the fitness piece plays such an important component of that, that, you know, even if you look at the the genetic studies that people that are identified as high risk from a genetic phenotype, if you 
you know, up to 50% lower risk in that, in that subgroup if they have a healthy lifestyle. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, healthy lifestyle plays an important role in factoring in prognosis, which I don't think, my opinion, most clinicians think about mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, when we still kind of think about like, your cholesterol and your, and your, you know, your family history and these other things. And maybe we're starting to pay, gen- pay attention to genetics a little bit more. But, you know, we still, I still think we, we have to do some training in how you bring in this important piece, as you say, about physical activity and, and exercise capacity when we think about someone's prognosis. Yeah. And then the other, uh, just as an aside, you know, thinking again about health literacy and messaging. So now we have the genetic studies coming out, right? And you can start to order these kits mm-hmm. and get your genetic phenotype. And there is a disconnect, I feel, between that information and the importance of lifestyle, perhaps even more important if you're genetically predisposed to increased risk for heart disease and other things. Mm-hmm. And so do are we sending the message to someone who has a high genetic risk phenotype? Oh, there's nothing to do for you. Right. Right. You, you know, they throw their hands up in the air. And I, you know, I think we need to start aligning the messaging of yes, you have this high risk. And it's even more important for you to eat well and be physically active because you can significantly lower your risk that way. Right. Right. But I don't know if we're doing that yet. So that I think that's an important piece to think about too. Yeah, and definitely something that we talk about, you know, in functional medicine and on our podcast quite a bit is where your you know, your genes do not make your destiny. And I also worry about the opposite end of that spectrum too, where people, you know, maybe don't have as high a risk genotype and they think they have a hall pass for right. whatever particular <laughs> lifestyle that they're living. It's a party. So that's equally right. That's exactly right. I had a follow-up question to that too, because I think you laid out a really interesting spectrum of, you know, the people who have sedentary lifestyle kind of all the way up to higher physical fitness. And I wonder a little bit about this back and forth that is always taking place, maybe the people of that like seven met, seven to 11 met area, where it's more bang for your buck, aerobic activity versus anaerobic activity. And this might be opening up a huge can of worms, but I'm wondering about that if you were going for overall longevity, bang for your buck, I think originally we talked a lot about anaerobic activity or sorry, aerobic activity, but that's shifted a little bit towards anaerobic and just overall muscle, the the importance of muscle dynamics. And I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I talk about that a lot too. So, you know, and that, that's more the individualized approach and paying attention to the person. So if you think about adherence, right, you think about, we have a largely sedentary and active global population Mm -hmm. and and the sensitivities of the ideal. So you're right, it's aerobic exercise plus two days per week, two or two to three days per week of resistance training. And if you throw all, you know, let alone throwing the 150 minutes or more per week of aerobic activity, you throw that on top, you know, what are you gonna get with adherence? So bottom line, like if, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s and you have poor aerobic fitness, I think my, my personal opinion, if you had to choose one, is still is still the lead, right? For longevity and mortality, mm-hmm. reducing mortality risk. It's it's upping your aerobic capacity. Certainly, if you can get someone to do both, yeah. you know, resistance train and aerobic train. But I would say, you know, laying that foundation of aerobic training first in younger populations, middle-aged populations. But then, and I've talked about this too, there you're right, there comes a shift where if you have, if you're a clinician, physician, and you have an 85-year-old patient 
who has a shuffle step gait, clearly has balance issues and muscle weakness. An aerobic starting leading with an aerobic exercise program isn't yeah is the way to go. Yeah. And in that in that individual, I mean, what's the dire risk? Fall and fracture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to think about prescribing the best exercise to address the most pressing health risks. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, for your elderly populations where premature cardiovascular disease or premature chronic disease isn't as much an issue, absolutely, you lead with, with strength training to reduce fall and fracture risk. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about heart failure patients and like the, so heart failure incidence and prevalence is increasing. Uh, the aging population is increasing. So we're going to have an aging, increasing aging heart failure population and exercise is important. But, you know, cardiologists need to be biomechanists to a degree as well and, and be able to assess gait yeah. and, right. and just say, well, you know, <laughs> get someone with a shuffle step gait pattern in and say, well, you need to start going on a walking program because aerobic exercise is good for you. You might be doing more harm That's than right. good. Yeah. That's right. You need to get your hips really strong, your hip muscles and your quadriceps so you can get out of a chair and you don't fall over and you can get up a flight of stairs and those types of things. So absolutely. And again, I think that speaks towards the individualized prescription for those types of patients. Right. Perfect. Well, what are some interesting things for answering that? And I'm just wondering too, like you're always up to new things. You're writing, always writing uh, lots of papers, lots of papers. Yeah. So what are some things that you're doing right now? What are some interesting things you and your team are working on these days that we can anticipate reading about in the coming future? So, yeah, so I, I'm a, I'm a weird sort of academic where I, <laughs> I've never, I, I, I have always valued collaborating and, and have learned from people that, that building a, a global collaborative network and working on big data sets uh, is much more fruitful and rewarding to me personally than, you know, working on your own lab. Mm-hmm. So, so I have several kind of focal areas and projects. So the friend registry, which is the largest international cardiopulmonary exercise testing registry, it's cardiopulmonary exercise testing data. I work with primarily Lenny Kaminsky from Ball State and John Myers from VA Palo Alto and Stanford in, in California. We kind of, the three of us run it. We have over a hundred thousand tests now from around the world. And so we, we, we have, I think three or four papers in development now, just building normative standards, reference values for aerobic capacity, blood pressure responses, and those things kind of setting the standard of, you know, this is what on a population level a normal exercise response looks like. And mm-hmm. in this country, it looks this way. In this country, it looks another way. So the, w- I think the friend registry will continue to be very fruitful in, in papers. I work with a group from Calgary with uh, a cardiac, a very large cardiac rehab database. We, we've coined it the Total Cardiology Research Network, where we have over 20, over 25,000 subjects. Now, everyone gets referred to cardiac rehab, about half go and half don't. And we've aligned our cardiac rehab registry with the approach database, which is the Alberta Health Tracking System. So we have all of the endpoints you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to address issues of what happens to individuals with cardiovascular disease and cancer and those who get referred to cardiac rehab versus those who don't. So, you know, the world of cardio-oncology is becoming so big. And just what's the survival differences if you participate in cardiac rehab? We're starting to look at multimorbidity more so, you know, to a more chronic conditions and what those individuals look like. So we've got a, a number of papers in there. 
that we're we're moving forward. So Total Cardiology Research Network will will continue to to push things out. We also have this pretty neat thing. This is the second year. We had to do it virtually this year, but we have this this retreat where the senior people in the in the network pick a mentee, a junior faculty member or a junior scientist, and work together to develop projects off of the registry, develop, you know, so they have to come to the to the summit or the retreat, which they did last year with a submission-ready abstract uh, to submit to conference. They present that and then off it goes. Then they have to develop a paper and submit that, you know, within six months. And then then there's a new, you know, then they'll present on a future project they can do. And we all would give feedback and move that project forward. So that was really successful last year. And, you know, more than four abstracts, more than four papers came out of that. And same same kind of trend this year. We're going to have our virtual retreat uh, next month, but all four abstracts from the, the junior scientists have already been submitted to conferences. And I think three out of the four, maybe all four were accepted already. Wow. So, and then of course, HL pivot and, you know, there's, we've got a, a, a scientific statement from the network we're working on. I think we're, our group is up to 11 or 12 COVID related lifestyle papers that are either accepted or in process. We just submitted another nutrition food security commentary in, in the context of COVID. So I think a lot's going to come from that network, papers, initiatives, collaborations, those those types of things. I think those are the, kind of the three big areas that we're wow. that yeah. I'm on now. Great. That's amazing. Uh, you are busy. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's <laughs> a lot happening there. <laughs> and I run two academic departments now. I, I'm a department head and my dean asked me to we had a vacancy in uh, biomedical health information sciences, so I just took them that oh, wow. department over two oh, wow. months. So I run two, I ran kinesiology and nutrition for two years, so uh, then they found another head, and then he asked me to run this department. So now, yeah, in your my free time, administrative foot doubled again. <laughs> well, I mean, with that, thank you so much We're for so spending honored. some of your time with us. Yeah. We are going to waste just another minute more of your time with a little bit of a question that we tend to, a little off topic, and something we call the fireball. The fireball. Yeah, I, I think I want to back this up just a little bit, Michael, because we know that you're currently in Chicago, right, Ross? And... I happen to know that you're from the Northeast mm -hmm. in general. So the fireball question is regarding pizza. So pizza in Chicago versus pizza in the Northeast, like New York style pizza. You got to pick a lane. Which would you choose? Oh, yeah. Well, New York style pizza. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm first generation Italian. My dad, I think, immigrated there from Calabria when he was 27. And I was on Arthur Avenue almost every other week. In the Bronx, getting we would jar our own tomatoes, <laughs> make our own wine, nice. make our own bread. Nice. And my first academic job was New York University, so I lived in the village. And uh -huh. so uh, John's and Joe's Pizza, <laughs> and still my kids, my daughter Anna Maria is uh, fourteen and a half, and my son Anthony's a little bit over thirteen. And the three of us <laughs> go back to New York every year, hmm. and uh, we just eat. <laughs> you know, we just walk around all day and eat. So. It, we go to a, you know, you can't, let alone pizza, you can't touch New York City bagels. Oh, so right, right, right. Bagel every morning, and then we go to John's <laughs> and Joe's, and then we go to some Italian pizza place, and then we just rotate. And then that kind of, and then I'm a little crazy in the kitchen, and it's like, I could be better than this. I could make a better pizza. You make your own. 
my kids still like I'm number three is John's and Joe's and, oh. then, and my, now number three <laughs> in there. There are, it's like, you'll never, you'll never be better than them. And I've tried all different things. I've tried to make it on the grill, the crust. I've tried what? different crust recipes and <laughs> make my own sauce. It's not, it's just not effective. For them, so. well, well, you might be number three, but yeah. at least, at least you made the list. You should be thankful. I, that's what right? I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and fish is great, but it's not, it's no, I, I, but uh, like, uh, you think you just alienated uh, everyone in, in your town? <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow it works going to be no, different. I, I'm pretty upfront honest about it. I, bet I, <laughs> I know. That I, uh, <laughs> I love like it. <laughs> always always uh, good to be, take the honest approach. So uh, thank you so much for answering that question. Yeah. And thank you so much for spending some time with us and having this conversation. I think this has been a fantastic Absolutely. conversation. It's kind uh, of this, this international voice that's pushing functional medicine forward. We just love it. And we encourage all the listeners to go check out your Global Path Forward paper that is found in progress in cardiovascular disease. And to check out, anyone can go to PubMed and just look at the hundreds yeah. and hundreds of things that you've published. Amazing yeah. information. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to speak to both of you. Thanks, Ross. That was fun. Wow. That was a good time. You know, what's interesting is, you know, the PhD in the conventional world, they really are doing this pivot to lifestyle medicine that we do here in functional medicine. Hopefully we meet in the middle. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a ton of information. There's a lot of people that can be helped Uh, based on his influence and the work that he's doing. So hats off to the work that he's Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. And I really like his overall approach, the way he's bringing a lot of different thought leaders together. It's great. Agree. Agree. Well, Michael, you think we should do a disclaimer? Yeah, we should do a disclaimer. The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Wait, who's that? Exactly. What a voice. No kidding. Next time on the lab report, multi-omics. Um, is that anything like metabolomics? I'm not going to give away all the secrets. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the lab report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Technically, they're not out there in podcast land. We're in podcast land. Wouldn't you make that argument? Hmm. Like you keep referring to them out there in podcast land. I'm like, well, technically, maybe us. Or are we all in podcast land? (laughs) 